everybody. Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm ready. And this week we're watching The Exorcist, the 1973 William Freakin Horror starring Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, Jason Miller, and Max von Sydow. Ready? Tell the people what The Exorcist is about. Sure. Chris McNeil, Ellen Burstyn, is an actress and single parent to troubled 12-year-old Regan, Linda Blair. A series of medical tests and procedures don't help Regan's deteriorating condition, and Chris becomes convinced she has been possessed. Uh, Chris enlists the help of psychiatrist and priest Damien Karras, Jason Miller, to save her daughter. Yeah, so sad, the sad man in this movie is Father Damien Karras. And... Sometimes it's hard for us to pick a sad man, um, but in this one, it was pretty pretty easy to, to figure out who the sad man was. Oh, sure. And one of the <clears throat> first things I wanted to mention is that the movie is called The Exorcist, but I feel like a lot of times people forget the fact that the real protagonist of this movie is Father Karras. Like I, I know I'm guilty of that myself, but everyone remembers the small girl getting possessed and twisting her head and puking over everybody. But really, at the heart of this movie, it's just about a sad man who's kind of riddled with guilt and lack of faith that is true um yeah like he's got the the real emotional journey is his like no one else really has that kind of journey um maybe regan but i she doesn't do anything to like earn that journey but uh so it really is only uh damien you know is the only person in the movie that uh really shows any growth yeah and I was kind of conflicted, well, not conflicted, but I was worried about coming into this movie because I have some familiarity with the priesthood, not in a very, not luckily not in a scandalous way. Did they touch but, you? No, thank God. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I'm sure I mentioned it to you at some point in our long friendship at this point, but I, growing up, I had one grandmother who wanted me to be a priest and the other one wanted me to be president. So I uh, grossly disappointed both of them, but... I, I went to Catholic grade school for kindergarten through fourth, but I didn't have any priests or nuns that I can remember teaching me then. But I went to a Catholic high school, and oh boy, was there a cast of characters with priests and nuns through those four years. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent, if at all, but if it comes up, I may have to impart some of those weird-ass stories. They slap your hands with a ruler? No, no corporal punish- punishment. Um there was, I can, three come to mind. I had Brother Ferris, who I had a couple times for history classes, who was like the Catholic Church version of Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, he had a very mm-hmm. odd voice. It was like, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, he had nicknames for me and all my friends. I was Bones because of my uh, extreme skinniness. Oh, I uh, thought it was because your, of your tendency to get boners. Uh, no, I'm... That transitions to the second <laughs> story, uh, Father Charles, who was a combination of Johnny Cash and John Wayne. And coincidentally, my stepfather was his urologist. Um, I don't know if I should disclose that, but he's dead. He's priest, not my stepdad. Um, and while I was in high school, that was kind of when the first inklings of the child abuse scandal started to come to light. And Father Charles was a math teacher. And one day he went on this long rant about how much he hated the priests who are sexually abusing kids. And fair. His, yeah. Which was very appealing rather than be like, Oh, these guys are, you know, deserve forgiveness or anything. No, he went on this rant. It's like, I'd never touch any of you honeys. I couldn't <laughs> if I wanted to, I'm dead down there. Uh, so 
that's goes back to the boner thing. But yes, he he spoke like Johnny Cash. He was, I think, he was former Navy uh, from Texas, I think. So he called everybody honey as well, male and female. Everybody was. Uh, and then there was Father John, who was this timid little Irish priest. He wasn't. Oh no! Oh, there's another one. I just remember. He He's wasn't Irish. I wish he was Irish. He was just from Philadelphia, I think. But he loved the, <laughs> the Ireland he, of America. He loved sevens and seven and sevens, the the cocktail. So he talked about that a lot, and he couldn't pronounce the word error. So when I had him for calculus, when you put in like a function in the calculator, if the error message came up, he would only say, as you will see, it will. It says e r r o r. He would never pronounce the word because people made fun of him too much. And then we had Father Oscar, who was from Spain, who called everybody goofy and was very handsy. Like he would give everybody like a hug or like squeeze their shoulders when they left the, the classroom. I'm so glad I, he says shoulder. Yeah, yeah. So I'd always leave through the back door so I wouldn't have to get near him because he was a little creepy and far too handsy. Um, so that's my sort of background with priests. Uh, I don't know whether that's useful to this episode or not but i'm just pointing but that I, out I, I was gonna ask you like both as a horror fan you know i i'm pretty sure you've seen this movie before but like your thoughts sure. there and then someone who grew up in the sort of catholic tradition um you know obviously i didn't grow up catholic or christian and then um i'm not a huge like horror guy so this was the first time i had seen the exorcist even though oh i didn't realize that yeah it was my first time and so you know i kind of uh absorbed like elements of it from the simpsons and like you know culturally and we can talk about that as we go along and i'm not like against horror like i'll watch like horror comedy or horror science fiction but and i you know i've even watched like horror like horror uh but i hadn't seen the exorcist so this is my first time so i wanted to like kind of ask you about some of the things and kind of get your take uh uh something i had heard was that the vatican during i think like the last five or ten years like the number of exorcists has gone up from like one to ten um hmm. i heard that on other podcast um well that may be due to the influence of the the pope's exorcist the russell crowe horror movie that came out this year that was not very good um <laughs> i don't believe it i'm actually i'm more interested in your perspective seeing this the first time I, yeah so i'm going to try and get us back there quickly as possible sure. uh my perspective on this, the main thought I had during a lot of the story, especially once this, the, the exorcist, the exorcism element of it finally kind of came into view. Now, I've thought about this before, but I wondered, is possession solely a Catholic concept? Like, do other religions have comparable body entanglements between some entity, like religious entity and the human body, like the way that Catholicism has demons taking over humans like that's not, i'm not and obviously i don't expect you to know the answer to that necessarily that's maybe more of a hypothetical but it definitely makes me wonder how many of these stories are christocentric i guess would be the term and then also i've wondered how much this movie has influenced the concept of those ghost tv shows like i mm-hmm. i will embarrassingly admit that i watch a lot of that show ghost adventures especially now that <laughs> it's been on hbo like that's been my go-to i'm going to turn this on while getting ready for bed or just need some sound in the background and i wondered how much of this movie influenced that or like the concept of oh it's cold that means there's a demon nearby or like mm-hmm. 
ghosts and demons take hold on, i made a list is cold and cold rooms impersonating voices knowing intimate details i've wondered how much like the rules of this movie inundated that culture or whether they existed kind of sui generis of themselves mm-hmm. for that and i don't think either one of us had the answer to that but that's kind of well, oh. I did have the question when it like came up, like uh, during the movie, I was like, wouldn't this demon prefer to be in the hot rather than the cold? Like it doesn't really. Yes, yes. I thought that too. But, you know, I'll finally make use of my English background. Maybe it's a reference to Dante's Divine Comedy, where when one the layers of hell, it's freezing cold instead of hot. So maybe it's some reference to that. I don't know. But I had that exact thought too last night. It's like, why wouldn't they want to be wanted to be in a hot environment like they were in hell? So I don't know. Maybe it's a vacation. For so yeah, like I uh, obviously don't have a lot of background on Christianity. Um, I went to like pre-Christmas service with my mother-in-law one time to be like, I'm a good son-in-law and did not know when to like stand up or sit down or whatever the situation was. Um, I went to Matt. I, so my family, the only time I went to the mass with the family was before my parents got divorced. So it was very mm-hmm. early on in life because my father's side was religious. My mother's side, not at all. So after that, the only religion, religious ceremonies I went to were school related. So usually it was either once a month, I think elementary school, I think it was maybe once a month. Middle school is once a week, which sucked because we we had to wear these heavy red blazers to mass every Wednesday morning in, mm-hmm. in South Florida heat. Pretty much every week, somebody either vomited or passed out. And Maybe they that, were possessed. Well, you know, I was <laughs> going to ask this question later. I was going to ask if you ever projectile vomited on anybody, because there's definitely a time during one of those masses, I was trying desperately to get to the back of the church where the bathroom was to vomit because I got like heat like, stroke and I knew I wasn't going to make it. And I was like, hurry the best as I could. I just felt it come at, vomit spewed out of my nose. And Ugh. somebody's mom was in the back of the church and saw and gave this like horrific look. And I was like, oh my God. And I was not intending to tell that story. I just remembered it just now. So if you want to share whether you've ever projectile vomited on anybody, feel free to. Otherwise, just ignore that I asked that question. <laughs> uh, we're going to cut this to editing, right? No, um, I have never projectile vomited on anyone. I don't think I vomited on anybody, uh, at least in like memory. Like I'm sure as like a baby, I vomited on someone. Yeah, but... like I'm sure I vomited on my mom someplace yeah. too. But I, I don't have any distinct memory of vomiting on anyone. Luckily, that story I just told the the mom who saw me and gave me the horrified look was nowhere near me. She just saw my shame. <laughs> if peeing on the carpet and vomiting in the bed are uh, signs of possession then my dog is possessed so <laughs> i don't i don't see a thing here yeah no uh yeah it's, i just like i'm coming to it with a very naive sort of like understanding and so i had a lot of like maybe basic sort of questions and then like maybe like a different sort of take on it but you mentioned that it, like when they finally get to the exorcism part and i really felt the same way watching the movie like it really took a long time to build up into the exorcism and you know, it's an early 70s movie. That's not surprising. And I feel like movies today would get to the point a little bit quicker, but it Mm -hmm. was definitely a slow burn. And, you know, I don't feel specifically one way or the other about it. I think it did take a little while to get like a little bit scary. And we spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time on the medical stuff. And for me, you know, we both have had like medical issues and like, 
the medical stuff was the most sort of repellent, unpleasant thing to, in the movie to like see. Like I couldn't oh, sure. watch when they did that like neck thing to her. That was that was not uh, not pleasant to watch. Yeah, I had to look that up. What was it? The encephalogram, and then she did a spinal tap. I believe was the two procedures she underwent that they showed that were very difficult to watch, but. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Val. I didn't remember it being so slow. I also didn't remember that this movie starts in Iraq, which I guess makes sense that where the demon comes from. But then that also is like, was well, that an otherness that this demon is from the Middle East? Then if it is from the Middle East, why didn't one of the Bush presidents bomb him out of existence? Uh, uh, anyways. No, yeah, I agreed. And like the first thing that comes up is like the Muslim call to prayer in the movie. And I was like, what is this Orientalist BS? (laughs) Um, But then like, you know, we both sort of grew up in this post 9-11 world. And like, if you're not like actively like mad at or uh, maligning uh, Middle Eastern or Asian people, then it's harder for me to like pick up on. And you know, given that it's a 70s movie, like it, I don't feel like as it's as like maligning to the Middle East as, you know, something made today might be um, mm-hmm. or something made like 10 years ago might be. And so, yeah, like it, it, it did feel sort of Orientalist, but it didn't like it didn't like completely set me off because um, it wasn't like actively sort of. But I do have notes about um there's a lot of stuff that's not really discussed in the movie, or at least the like the uh, original cut that I saw. Like I watched on uh, HBO Max, which is now just Max, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, we own a copy, but I was yeah. too lazy to dig up the copy, so that's what we watched too. And there's a couple of scenes that explain the movie a little bit more, but um, the demon who possesses Linda Blair is Pazuzu, mm-hmm. and I knew that like I knew that name like immediately. It's it it set something off in my brain. Pazuzu is a demon in uh, this game called. Shin Megami Tensei uh, also involves demons. I'll talk about that a little bit more, but um, he's actual like a real demon god in Mesopotamian religion. And so no one here is standing up for the ancient Mesopotamians, but I will. He's not like a bad dude completely. Like he was destructive and dangerous as like a personification of the south Southwestern wind. But he also protected pregnant women and mothers, which feels weird in this movie. And he defended um them from a rival goddess or demoness and so he's not completely a bad guy and it kind of that kind of felt sort of the exclusiveness of christianity or monotheistic religion where like we're going to take this uh god from Meso- uh, ancient mesopotamian religion and um there are good aspects to him and bad aspects to him and we're going to make him like pure evil in this movie so no one is standing up for ancient sumer but i will well, in the video game, did Pazuzu have a snake dick like the statue at the start of this movie? Uh, I don't remember. There's a picture. We could look it up. But uh, he's got like a, a lion's head and like bat wings and things like that. Uh, oh, I know that. You know, there actually was a point in the movie where, was it the detective looking at the kid's drawing where there was an image drawn yeah, like I that? Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. He has the face of a lion, the body of a human. This is from Shin Megami Tensei Five. A demon, uh, the, 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 it's kind of like Pokemon. And so you collect these <laughs> demons and they fight for you. But a demon from Sumerian civilization, he governs the southwestern wind. He has the face of a lion, the body of a human, the wings of a bird, the talons of an eagle, the tail of a scorpion, and a curved horn protruding from his forehead. It is said the wind he blew from the Persian Gulf spread these disease throughout the land. Hmm. Sounds like a catch. <laughs> a real hottie. 
Oh yeah. Well, that was a surprise in the beginning. I always forget it starts off in the Middle East and then pretty quickly transitions to Georgetown and in, inside DC. And what as he said earlier, it's the mothers filming a movie there. They don't really show what the movie is, but I had a note to myself, is she filming an anti anti war movie? Like it seemed, <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. It seemed like that. And really that's neither here or there, but I was kind of that's No, I, I do know. think it's like you know, I read something that like for this demonic possession, the only way to get rid of the demon was to work through the system of the Catholic Church. And so she yells at uh, I think one of her lines in the movie is like, you can't affect any change or something like you can't affect any change, like working outside the system. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. It's a very thematic of like, this is a very like conservative movie about, mm-hmm. you know, faith and having that faith in religion and working through sort of the, the old ways to, to right a wrong or, or to get rid of this demon. Yeah. Well, that'll take me on a little tangent where this movie was uh, directed by William Friedkin, which is one of the reasons we chose it. it was, he passed away not too long ago. Uh, also, inadvertently, this is the 50th anniversary of the movie. We did not intend, I don't think that came into our factoring to choose it, but we've so far we've had a 10th anniversary with World's End, 20th anniversary with uh, Lost in Translation, now the 50th anniversary for this. So we are uh, definitely inadvertently causing uh, anniversary films. Uh, but I don't know much about Friedkin, but another movie of his I've seen is To Live and Die in L.A. And the premise of that is a Secret Service agent goes after a counterfeiter uh, played by Will- Willem Dafoe. And it's it's an interesting movie. But at the start of that film, there's a Secret Service agent who nearly dies when a Middle Eastern man commits suicide with a, a bomb trying to kill, like, presumably, Reagan. Um, and I listened to the director's commentary a couple months ago while working and uh, Friedkin may have, he may not align with a lot of liberal progressive values nowadays. So I'm not sure about that, but I'll just leave it at that based on some of the commentary I recall from him describing that scene. Uh, so there may be a little bit of conservative bent here. And I think anytime the Catholic church is involved, you have to assume there's some conservative skew to it but at the same time going back to the sad man with father Karras, uh one of the notes that i have is that i enjoy the fact that he was not like a superhero priest he actually was this kind of flawed guy super intelligence presumably he seemed to like a very talented psychiatrist from what other characters said but ultimately he's kind of a schmo like he he's kind of self-loathing did he have a, a radio show like fraser crane no uh, he did not have uh Toss salad and scrambled eggs. He had <laughs> uh, a nice Caesar salad with a hard-boiled egg. Uh, just was not in the same same mindset. But no, I, I enjoyed the fact that it's kind of like a like a schlubby priest. Although he, I mean, I say schlubby, but not in the traditional sense because this guy's like a boxer and he's running laps. He's much better shaped than either one of us. True, but but he had like a lot of you know. He had the Catholic guilt, so that's always nice to see that that's just inherent in the religion. Um, you know, he's he's kind of questioning his faith. He's living in D.C. He's a was he a dorm RA at Georgetown? That's what it looked like to me. <laughs> I, I I thought I just thought every apartment in the 1970s looked like, like the whole movie looks like that. But I thought every apartment looked like that. But yeah, maybe he was because it did seem like a 
now that you mentioned it, it did seem like a dorm room as opposed to like a real apartment well i was throwing i was throwing off at first where he's in the subway and i was like this doesn't look like dc subway and he goes into the apartment and it's like oh yeah priests do take vows of poverty but then we found find out it's his mother's apartment in new york city and that ends up being kind of like one of the main uh propellants like the for warriors his outside his mom's apartment but... oh yeah i mean the guy's clicking the bottles together on his fingers saying father curious come out hey <laughs> um and they they got <laughs> people chased him down because they thought he was part of that gang that dressed like priests with the, <laughs> all black in the collars um you know so we find out that he he's living in dc he has an elderly sick mother in new york city he can't really provide for her or take care of her. She's kind of living as a shut-in because she's kind of a bit of an invalid. There's something wrong with her leg, I guess. They don't really go on it. And then shortly Damn after... Damien, why you no speak with your accent no more? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's been... I will say the pacing and the editing at the beginning of the movie was kind of confusing because we have that scene. Then like very shortly after, his uncle contacts him and she's in like a like a beggar's hospital and he's like i'm gonna get you out of here mom and then like two scenes later it's like she's dead and like we don't it was a little little jumbled to me ultimately it just goes to this guy's a very talented doctor but since he decided to become a priest he's taken a vow of poverty so he has no money and his uncle even kind of shames him and says at one point no if you were a a normal doctor you'd be living in a penthouse on fifth avenue right now so i he's definitely guilty over the fact that he's taken this vow of poverty and he doesn't help people. There's a scene very early on where a beggar in the subway asks him for help and he doesn't do anything. So then we eventually find out that he's questioning his faith, he's questioning himself. And so I enjoyed the fact that it wasn't this super holy man who totally devout, uh, totally devoted to God, helps everybody, knows what to do. It's just this guy's like, ugh. I don't know. I kind of fucked up with my choices in life, and now I kind of hate myself for it. So that was refreshing in a way. I feel like that's more realistic than a lot of portrayals of Greece I've seen in modern uh, cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even the Exorcist sequels kind of veered towards Super Priest rather than, uh, you know, 1970s flawed, tragic main character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something I think we would see today. And uh, although we do have, you mentioned the anniversaries, but in uh, looking up the movie afterwards, after watching it, a quote, a new trilogy of Exorcist films from director David Gordon Green will be produced by Bloomhouse and jointly distributed by Universal Pictures and Peacock with the first movie, The Exorcist Believer, set to release October 13th, 2023. So less than a month from now, as we're recording this, um, will be a sequel to the original feature Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair returning as Chris and Regan. Oh, I didn't realize that two months shy from the original's 50th anniversary. So yeah, I'm curious to see like, you know, if this Arab stuff comes or the Middle Eastern stuff comes up again and how that's like portrayed. I doubt it, but maybe it will. And then Mm -hmm. also like what the priests will be like this time. Cause I think that, you know, kind of flawed, tragic character was a very like 1970s, like male uh, movie hero trope. Whereas like, you know, we live in the 2020s where Captain America is like the, you know, the like movie hero trope. And we don't see that as much, or maybe, you know, maybe just, I haven't seen as much lately, but either it's Michael Sarah playing some twee guy who's not like <laughs> um, uh, super um, 
manly and uh, kind of toxic masculinity sort of way. Are you talking about Alan? (laughs) Again? Are you talking about Alan, Michael Sarah's role in Barbie? Yes. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking of Alan. I'm thinking of uh, the family trauma he's in right now, which I can't remember the name of because I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, so... Like you said, it is a slow burn. It is like a flawed char- like character. I don't think you see that as much anymore. And then there's one thing that I was thinking of while I was watching the movie. A lot of the seeing Regan pee on the floor was disconcerting. And then some of the language was, you know, disconcerting, although. Oh, I'm fantastic sure we- cursing. I, that was one of the notes that I made myself. This is S tier cursing. It's, <laughs> it's I, I'm sure we've said worse off Mike is, is what I was. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I I would like to think I have in like moments of rage, but even then, I don't think I said any stuff that's just like that would make someone go, "Holy shit, what did you just say?" Like, I don't think I've said anything that vulgar or unique as, as what is said from in the this guy movie. who got two events canceled in undergraduate uh, at our college uh, due to uh, the works he produced and showed. Yeah. You know, well, let's not forget that you starred in one of those. So That's true. <laughs> um, um, but uh, no, but yeah, the, the language like was a little bit like sort of off-putting, but like I think probably in the 70s, it was a lot worse. Like, Oh, it, it had to have been. Yeah. But like, it wasn't like that horrifying to me overall. And like, there's a trope on TV tropes that's titled Seinfeld is not funny. And it basically... Bum, bum, ba, da, da, yeah. What's the deal with TV tropes? What's the um, deal with TV tropes? But it basically says, like, if you grew up watching Seinfeld or, like, even, like, you know, like, you saw it as an adult, it was, like, transversive and, like, um, is that a word? Transversive? Yes. Um, uh, transgressive. transgressive? Yeah. Yes. It was transgressive and it was, like, different from any, everything else that was on, like, TV at that point. But then everything copied it. So, like, you have, like, always sunny in philadelphia that like pushed the envelope further and so if you didn't grow up watching it or if it wasn't new to you like it's not funny because like everything else has done that already and pushed the envelope even more and i kind of felt that way about the exorcist and like i don't think it was like that like i could see like some of the underpinnings for like modern horror but like it wasn't that scary except for that that med- those medical scenes which was like oh this is too much for me hmm. yeah i mean that was definitely the most graphic but i did have one of my notes was once the possession starts, it just goes for it. There wasn't like a build up where, yeah, like some modern horror, they'll be like, Ooh, I'm, I'm a mischie- mischievous demon. I'm going to get you. This one's just like, <laughs> Fuck your mother. Like it just goes, it just goes from zero to a hundred. And I enjoyed that. Because it no, goes hard. Yeah. There was no ramp up. It's just, you know, st- I'll say stabbing, but I think a lot of people interpret it as masturbating with the cross. And, I thought it was stabbing too. I didn't like. I saw some references to masturbation. I was like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, I, I can understand why people would perceive it that way. I didn't because I don't. I guess it could have been a very violent. I've been doing it the wrong way. I guess. Yeah. Is what I, 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 I don't. I feel a little, this is territory. I don't really want to go into. But, <laughs> but yeah, I I saw it more so as stabbing. But given the the location of where it was happening i can understand what people thought masturbating subversive and uh sure to offend a lot of people regardless no matter which way you interpret that but it just man it i thought it held up pretty well like granted it's not terrifying in a super shocking way but it's definitely it's definitely memorable and unsettling to say the least yeah no absolutely like it's burned into my you know 
brain from now on. So yeah, that's that's happened. It does feel like less transgressive, like compared to like the last like really straight horror movie that I can remember seeing is uh, Audition, which was a long mm-hmm. time ago. And comparing like that to Audition, like Audition is like gross, grosser. Sure. Uh, well, I think Japanese yeah. horror, I, well, it may not be totally. I'm not super confident about this statement, but I'm not. I can't argue totally with, you, with, horror, with you about it. But so. I feel like Japanese horror and French horror tend to really focus on extreme elements of mutilation. Maybe mm-hmm. more so French horror than Japanese horror. Uh, you know, even some Korean horror, but even then, the one that comes to mind is I Saw the Devil. And I don't. I don't consider that to be a horror movie personally, but I know some people can. Anyways. Sorry, I'm taking us on weird tangents today. That's so. fine. <laughs> the whole the whole podcast is weird tangents. Should we change the podcast premise of weird tangent podcast? Sure. <laughs> Patreon <laughs> subscribers, you can listen to weird tangents every week um, well, for five dollars a month. No, like I said, like I I didn't understand a lot of the movie after the first watch. Like I'm like, why is this demon who was unnamed? Um, I didn't really think there needed to be a name, but like it didn't occurred to me like the demon was fucking with uh damien by saying he's the devil mm-hmm. you know and there's like a lot of stuff where like pre-renaissance or enlightenment christianity the devil was sort of a trickster and less of like a central like figure of evil and you know sort of like loki or someone like that and so like i'm like why is it multiple demons like i don't get what's happening there and then i read about the the alt like the director's cut ending where the McNeil, oh, well, the McNeils prepare to leave. They say goodbye to Father Dyer, kisses him on the cheek. I just um, want to mention that's the priest that wanted to be a headliner at a jazz club. Yeah. You mentioned that. I thought that was a wonderful throwaway line where it's like, yeah, this is more in line with the weird ass priest that I dealt with growing up. His idea of heaven, yeah. Oh, and then the other cutscene was like, they take a break from the exorcism and the two priests sort of talk about the demon and like, the demon's trying to get back at is it Von Snyder's character? Oh, uh, Seidel, yeah, yeah, Sy- uh, Seidel, because he had been he was the one. And that was another throwaway line without the the, the with the, you know that scene cut is he had done an exorcism in Africa and got the demon mm-hmm. out of like some boy, and so that was the same demon, and like all of this would have made a lot more sense in the context of the movie had they been left in rather than like uh, kind of left on the cutting room floor for this cut. Yeah, it would have helped, but ultimately, I think the movie doesn't. I don't. Know, I think it would have helped, but it didn't detract exceptional amount. I also kind of enjoy it when movies leave some ambiguity. I that's, think that's true. That's a little scarier, where it's just like, oh, I don't know where this came from. I don't know why this is happening. That that sort of uh, feeling of dread is something I enjoy in horror movies personally. So it wasn't. But yeah, you don't time, want it like handed to you on a plate. And I, this is why the, the kind of the problem I have with like trying to create like a universe around a horror movie because like you're starting to having to explain where Jason Voorhees came from, for example, mm-hmm. or the dude from Saw or, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. you get, you know, you're, you're, you're ruining it by like explaining what's going on. And, and yeah, um, well, that's, that's something interesting. The fact you mentioned the, the exorcist sequel that's coming out shortly at the time of this recording, the fact mm-hmm. that Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn are coming back for that. That's sort of surprising because I've never seen Exorcist 2, which that came that title card came up at the end on HBO. And I was like, oh, is that Linda Blair again? Which I mm-hmm. did not know. I have seen Exorcist 3, 
which is pretty good. But that's mostly unrelated. I think Father Cares. Well, no, he's not. Never mind. He may have a cameo as like a ghost or something. But that's uh, that's that seems, uh, that seems not great, you know. Just uh, on the ending of this movie. Yeah, I can't. I may be making that up. The only thing I remember for sure about that movie is there's a, a famous scene with like garden shears, and then there's a random cameo by Patrick Ewing, which took me out of the movie <laughs> when I saw it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, yeah, I wonder how much the Exorcist. Well, I know for the third one. It's called Exorcist 3, but it's a totally different story. Like, it, they just mm-hmm. took a, it was either a novel or a screenplay that had no relation to Exorcist, the Exorcist first two at all. And like, I'll just call it Exorcist 3, which is a normal trend in, in horror that there'll be uh, scripts that kind of stand on their own, but to get some sort of uh, media attention, they'll lump it under some other umbrella name, even though it's not really related, like uh, Halloween three same deal with that that was and that's a very polarizing film in the horror community so i won't so was go it, wait my my question is and i this is it's been like a week or two since i watched the movie and like looked up stuff but like exorcist three i think it was like mostly unrelated but i think it was like by the same author for the original book and then was like that what it was i maybe i can't remember which one it was but one of them was like uh based on the book by the same guy and it like i think the main character was the astronaut that Regan says is going to die at the beginning of Exorcist. Oh, maybe it's been a while since I've seen it. Okay, I yeah, could be wrong. All right, uh, so the, the actor yeah. who plays Father Kyrus is in it, but he's listed as Patient X. So that's what was throwing me off because I was trying to remember how the okay. hell he was in there. Yeah, and then it's just it's just George C. Scott as a I think he's a detective. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I can't, can't remember if he's a sad man in that. I may rewatch that regardless. I think I remember that being pretty interesting. You bring up the detective, like, I kind of feel like they could have cut that whole subplot. In the end, like, in the in the cut scene at the end, like, uh, man, I can't remember any of these guys' names. They Their names were very rarely used in the film, so it's yeah. not surprising. Uh, Dyer and the off Kinderman, I think, develop a friendship, and it kind of shows you that more that good has won. I think it was like, I didn't find it that ambiguous, but I did read that people did find it ambiguous. And so, but I, and so I think, like, again, the detective here maybe had a purpose in that cut ending, but like for the most part, it didn't really seem to have a purpose to me. Like that subplot where he thinks Karis is maybe the one who's doing everything, killed the guy and, yeah. and you know, did, what's the word? Like trash those statues as Mary, oh, like... Desecrated, my friend. He somewhat desecrated those church statues. Yes, <laughs> you're right. I was like, that kind of looked cool. Like that's, if you're going <laughs> to be like a dick, like that's pretty good way, you know. But yeah, like I feel like that subplot went nowhere. And so I was like, this that whole thing could have been cut. I think the detective was just a tool to get Father Karras to the, to the Regan character. Mm-hmm. And my only thought with the detective was that if he were around in modern times, he for sure would also have a movie podcast. <laughs> he reminded me of... um. Lenny on Law and Order because like whenever they would show them like doing like a foot chase like Lenny Briscoe was too old to like be too slow and then like run out of breath in like two seconds and it was always his younger partner that like caught the guy so like I was like they really don't make police detectives like this anymore because that dude was definitely like Hercule pro type mm-hmm. well I want to I want to backtrack one thing with the detective yeah. is he gets brought into the story because the director of the film who's directing the Ellen Burstyn character. Yeah. He's found dead at the bottom of these, this giant outdoor stairwell 
yeah. with his head turned 180. And the yeah. detective thinks that that gruesome body injury did not happen in the fall. So that's how he gets brought into the story, which leads me to one of the questions I most wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Have you reached the point in your life where you consider your own mortality each time you use the stairs? <laughs> because I have. Yes, I definitely have. Not at this place. No, maybe at this place too, actually. But definitely at our last apartment, I slipped down the stairs and like I landed ass first. So like, I guess it's fine. But I definitely was like bruised on like a on the butt, butt cheek, like for like a month afterwards. And I was like, if I tumbled a little bit differently, that would be that would have been it for me. No, yeah, like I definitely consider my own mortality. Uh, you know, anytime like I use the stairs, um, I will definitely use the hand railing. Like me too, uh, <laughs> ladies. We are not cool guys. We are we are old men. No, I'm I'm looking forward to the day where we get that, or at least you know we can get that like motorized chair that takes you upstairs. Oh, see, I want I don't want one of that because it, is it Beetlejuice where they have one of those and it launches the person out of the ceiling. I don't remember, but I remember that some eighties four has that scene, and I was like, "That's what I think of anytime I see those." I mean, that would be cool too. There, that's a way to go. Hmm. Speaking of ways to go, you know, Father Karras goads the demon into possessing him, and then he somehow retains enough control to uh, jumps out the window kills himself and the demon with him. My thought when I saw this was like, no, 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 none of it makes sense. Like, how does this work? Like killing himself kills the demon. I didn't, it didn't really seem to make sense to me, but you know, it was like a very touching scene in terms of like, that was his full character arc. He's definitely sort of come back around to being Catholic and being religious and sort of see, you know, the, the, uh, I think, is is it dire? Like, I think it's dire that is reading him his last rites and he's mm-hmm. like squeezing his finger to like kind of affirm mm-hmm. these things. And so it it is kind of moving in that respect. Well, well, I'll say, I don't even know if his motivation was necessarily kind of, I would say it's even kind of more restricted than that. Really. I think he just wanted to help people. I think that was mm-hmm. kind of the main kind of crisis of faith was that he felt like he wasn't doing any good to help anyone. He wasn't mm-hmm. able to help his mom. He wasn't able to help that beggar. But mm-hmm. he was able to help this girl. And so I think that's kind of like, that was sort of the reasoning for it. It was like, I can help this girl not have to be possessed anymore so she can live her life. Mm-hmm. And then also hopefully prevent it from taking over anybody else. I mean, who knows if the demon is dead per se. I don't know if a demon can die. But I guess it wasn't able to kind of transfer to anyone else. So, you know, in a world where this is the only film, I think the understanding is that that demon is gone and Mm -hmm. everybody is safe. So that's how I took it more so than like any sort of devotion to God or his faith necessarily. Fair enough. I I don't know what to say to that. Like, I don't I hadn't considered that angle of it. You know, sort of the, the traditional sort of themes I saw were like him, like getting back to his faith but i don't i yeah i I think it's completely viable to say that like maybe it wasn't his faith per se but like helping others and you're right like he kind of goes through the movie unable to help people and so in this way he is you know kind of able to do so yeah Um, i guess it is sort of parsing hairs because i guess the inherent element of the faith is helping people so i guess by helping people he but you know inherently is getting the faith because they're one and the same i guess you can't really separate the two 
if if there are any two people unqualified to like really dig into sort of nuances of of you know people's religions, it's it's probably us. But yeah, no, I think you're. I think that's right. I think they're both valid interpretations, sort of one way or the other. Like. Mm-hmm. considered like separately or together like they are like valid sort of you know sort of ways to look at it you know i guess i just had this really stupid idea having the note about him being a boxer uh we could consider that this is him being a boxer taking a final dive and so I don't, <laughs> that uh that may be a little too dark um i do feel like that the, from just what i saw of like other movies like i did it did like the the sequel movies like they did t- tend to get a little bit hokier and i i feel like that joke might have come in in one of the, the later movies. <laughs> well, that'll be in our scary movie parody of The Exorcist. <laughs> We're X. gonna have to think of a title for that one. Yeah. It'll call it no. It'll call it'll call it the X E X space O R space C Y S T the Exorcist. So it's either like about an X relationship or a giant cyst that's growing on your arm. Speaking of cysts, um, <laughs> Linda Blair did a really good job as a, like a young child, like doing this. She's a pretty good actress. Uh, oh yeah, third. Yeah, no, I, that was one of the things that we talked about while watching it was that she definitely was able to kind of convey childhood. You know, not necessarily innocence, but like she was definitely a good kid actor when she was unpossessed, and then when she was possessed, just kind of being able to perform the. I was going to say body horror, but that's not. But just like. The physicality of the role. I mean, just get flung around and gyrate and pushed all around on this bed going crazy. Like, she definitely, she sold it. She did a great job with that. Yeah, I saw, I think, on Wikipedia that Violet Beauregard from Willy Wonka was considered for the role. Mm. Um, Her family found the script too dark. Janet Leigh would not let her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, audition. They were considering older actresses until Linda Blair came in. And so, yeah, like, that's pretty impressive. And it does, I don't know, like, I don't know Linda Blair's, like, sort of, I think I would have been, like, her heyday would have been, like, 70s, like, early 80s. And I was, you know, pretty young. Yeah, I mean, Um, we didn't exist for most of that. Yeah, exactly. Early 80s, I would have been, like, pretty young. I think of her in these movies, and I don't know if she had a career outside of, like, really outside of The Exorcist, but... I'm not sure. I know, (laughs) random random trivia, I know she did a a Playboy spread at some point in the (laughs) late 80s or 90s. I don't... I mean, that's just one of those things for spending years of my life on Reddit. Of course, I know that. Um, But just, I'm glad you brought her up, because... I'm not Googling anything right now. No. <laughs> because one of the things, I know a, a very common commentary in this film is that it's about single motherhood. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this commentary exists somewhere. I didn't look it up, though. But I was wondering how much of this could be perceived as a puberty metaphor. Because it happens right after she turns 12 years old. I wonder if they, I mean, I, I think that's a long shot metaphor, but... It, I think it's something that should be considered to a degree. Just the fact. I don't. Just... I don't think. I even think it's a long shot. I think it's definitely there. Is like. So I don't know if they were like consciously thinking about it, but you know, like all of this te- like starts after Regan and and her mom had that conversation about her mom's boyfriend, and like he's like, "Do you like like him?" I definitely think that there's a sub subtext of especially women going through puberty. And I read somewhere, maybe this was on Wikipedia, that the film's focus, yeah, the film's focus on the female body as a site of horror. And it's like, it is Mm. Regan becoming someone who has sexuality, it has desires, and like kind of corrupting her from the inside. And Wikipedia is citing someone called Jude, Jude Ellison Doyle in a book called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. Mm. Yeah, Um, I may may have to look, that may be a good gift for certain someone in my life. (laughs) <laughs> and I also like you mentioned you kind of touched on it too like 
it does also, and this is another reason I sort of saw it as a conservative movie, is that you have this single mother and her daughter, and basically they fuck up. Like, their life gets into this, like, situation that's, like, untenable, and it takes, like, the traditional male heroes to come in and sacrifice themselves in a very traditional masculine way. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, not, e- can... not even just men, fathers. Yes, 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 you're totally right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely wondered how much of that was intentional, because early on, there's a question whether... Regan's dad is dead or if it's a divorce situation then we do find out that he is alive and he's off in Europe with whatever and then there's a big scene where Ellen Burstyn is yelling at the operator on the phone trying to get in touch with him because he didn't call on the on Regan's birthday and you know and that's why a lot of people is some story about single motherhood and told that that can take on children and blah 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 as someone who grew up as, with a single mother for several years, it turned out fine. I always kind of tend to poo-poo those storylines just because I think it's from people who did not live that life and think that there's something wrong with it when there isn't. And I won't go off on my diatribes that I also learned in domestic violence settings about sometimes the pro- appropriate environment for a kid as a single parent household. <laughs> There was another quote from a S. Trimble on Wikipedia saying that the film tapped into white American white American fears of nightmare futures that could result from women's liberation, gay liberation, and black power movements, you know, challenging the 1970s social order. Yeah, I wonder where this if this was one of the first in that kind of pantheon of 70s counterculture films. I guess this isn't counterculture to a degree, but uh, you know what? I'm not qualified enough in that genre. I know it exists, but if any film nerds hear this, they'll give me a hard time for being dumb about it so i will right in with your complaints and comments no just send us praise please yeah what else did you kind of struck you about this movie like as someone who kind of is a fan of the film and and sees like how it influences other movies maybe even outside of the exorcist averse well that's something we talked about in the last episode and what we do in the shadows about how practical effects are always better Yeah, you know, I don't think they had any option other than practical at this point in time. But watching it, it it holds up with the bed shaking and levitating and the heads turning 180 degrees. It's, you know, it doesn't look perfect, but it doesn't look bad necessarily either. Well, another thing I kind of wanted to bring up, since this is a sad man movie podcast, this is our first sad man suicide, I guess. Yeah, this is our first sad man suicide. I guess, like, as you said, it's for the greater good or for doing good. So I can't really, it's not like, I'm it's not, sad. It's not, I'm yeah, it's not suicide. Depressed. Yeah, no, it's just, that was just something I feel like if we're going to pretend that there's a theme to this podcast, we should mention that, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think, like, eventually, like, his ability, whatever it is, like, whether he reconnects with his faith or reconnects with doing for others or both in sort of the same package like or just feels like he has some sort of value or or worth in any context i suppose he's not a sad man at the end he's happy with what he's done so i I guess that does like sort of invert like a traditional sort of like he committed suicide because he was sad no he committed suicide because he was happy and kind of saw his life and understood you know what he wanted to do for the greater good it was, yes, exactly. You'll rarely hear the phrase good suicide, I guess, like anywhere and on this podcast. But, you know, I guess it is like that's great for him. Well, another question I had for you mm. is early on before the possession happens, Regan refers to speaking to some invisible entity that she named Captain Howdy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you ever have an imaginary friend growing up? And if so, did it turn out to be a demon? 
<laughs> no, I don't think I did, but I would have to ask. I know my little brother did, but I don't think I did. I'm surrounded by demons, but <laughs> not of the imaginary friend sort. Speaking of uh, sort of random notes from our thing, I have the quote, one of Regan's room clearing farts. I don't know what that is about. I think she stuck up the room or she actually farted. <laughs> oh, see, I missed that one. But my random ass quote of this movie was, there seems to be an alien pubic hair in my drink. <laughs> Ew. Did you catch that one? Was... I, I, there was something I remember where they were talking about it being an alien or something, and that was like weird. It was at the cocktail party where the, the director yeah, yeah, yeah. who ends up dead says that. It's just, yeah, it just seemed like a very odd line for this movie. I also, there was a, a scene where Regan's mother is in a room with like seven doctors and they're trying to figure out like what's going on with her. And I was like, my note was like, imagine getting access to a whole boardroom of doctors. That's not happening in Biden's America. Well, she's a famous celebrity in this, but this goes to another question I've been trying to find a way to bring up. Do you think this movie is anti-medicine? I don't, I mean, I think unfortunately, if you're going to blame your problems on demons, like... That's by its nature, sort of like anti-medicine. Mm -hmm. Like you think about, and I'm not going to name any specific religious groups or anything, but like people who don't take vaccines or won't get blood transfusions and all that kind of thing. And I'm like, no, man, like live, live. Yeah. Like, And so like, I feel like, you know, the people who wrote and directed this movie understand that it's fiction and demonic possession is not real. But if someone mm -hmm. is going to say... And I did see that there was like a very big sort of shift in how this movie is seen by like religious Christian people, and I don't mean Catholics specifically, I mean sort of like American kind of Christianity, whereas like... L lowercase Catholic and not uppercase Catholic. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, at first, like especially from non-Catholic Christians, like the, the response was like mind-boggling to me was that, you know, setting up a source of evil that we can't blame for things. But now, like in a sort of differently religious America, like a lot of people, even non-Catholics are like, yes, demonic possession. And when you think that, you're like, you're ruling out like science and medicine and all this kind of stuff. But I'm sure like the people sort of involved with it are like, no, like we don't necessarily believe in demonic possession. Like, you know, you can come and take my appendix out. It's fine. <laughs> you mean it's not a demon in there squeezing it? Yeah, exactly. Do you um, think there's a porn parody of the actresses out there? Oh, I'm sure there Where is. I'm like, sure it's like... It's like the actors are doing their thing and then like the stagehands are just rocking the bed uncontrollably underneath <laughs> them. The lights oh. are flashing on and off and someone's just like, you know, using the, the light switch. Stick your cock in my ass. Yeah, ah. you got it, baby. Like I, <laughs> oh, man. I kind of want to look that up, but at the same time, I don't want that search history. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm going to let your private or incognito maybe, mode go. Uh, this is an invitation for any of those VPN services to, to, yeah. uh, to sponsor us. Yeah, you want to look up the worst lines of the exorcist you want to do for... you want to do tangential research to your movie podcast but you don't want people you don't want your isp to think you're a sexual deviant sign up for a free subscription the nord vpn exactly nord See? this is what we could be doing for you advertisers that was off the dome <laughs> i don't even need copy i can do this no problem baby oh yeah i do have a line about uh i do have alien pubic hair question mark what the yes, fuck was the I, 1970s like? Yeah, I, I mean, I took it as an alien, but just going off a silly tangent, 
I don't think aliens have pubic hair. All the all those grays, they, they don't seem to have hair at all. I mean, it would make sense if there's a hairy alien, so maybe Chewbacca dipped his nuts in the director's cocktail. I don't know. You don't think Danny DeVito is a hairy alien that has come to our world? No, he's just <laughs> uh, he's just a guy. He's a man from this planet. He's a guy. He, he would have been a priest in a past life. <laughs> there's a couple of other things that I, I did <laughs> want to bring up about the movie, or like two or three things like one is like there's a couple of places especially with Karis that was like he promises the mom that he's gonna like make sure that Regan is fine Mm -hmm. and I expected to see like a scene where it's that meme of Arthur from the kids show Arthur where he's like clenching his fist fist. (laughs) yeah you don't see that and I feel like one I wonder in the 70s if the language was different in terms of like this is what will show the audience to show that the character is committed and has gritted his teeth and is going to do it. But it's also like, where, su- yeah. Also, I was going to say, I think that's where the whole boxer backstory came in. Cause I, I made yeah. a note, you know, a cheeky note for myself. It's like, he's a boxer. That's how we know he's a fighter. And I, <laughs> and so I, but at the same time, I think that kind of goes with what you're saying. It's just like, he's going to keep getting the shit beat out of him by this demon, but he didn't back up. Yeah. And you know, I guess this goes back to what I we was saying earlier. If his goal was just to save the girl. Yeah. Once he had the opportunity to do that, it makes sense he would launch himself out the window because that ensured that the demon would not go. Well, I guess that's a big leap of faith to make, but if it's a man of faith, that's yeah. the person who should be making a leap of faith. I, I mean, it's a very literal like leap of faith. A leap of yeah. faith out the window, but taking a step back, he did have a pretty simple, clear goal. It's just like, I want to get the demon out of the girl and keep it out. So, yeah. yeah. I did read that like people didn't understand the ending of the theatrical cut. Like, did he win sure. or did like. And that too, I feel like a movie today, like a sort of modern, you know, a, a broad sort of movie for for adults would be like, and I got him. <laughs> you know, now I think end, about, like, you know, I, I didn't think about it until just now, but I, I can understand the ambiguity now where I can see people thinking, oh, did the demon make him jump out the window? Because that, ultimately that's what happened with the director. They, you know, never come out and say it, but. Mm-hmm. ultimately what happened is that in, we don't see it, but the demon somehow killed the director by launching him out the window. Mm-hmm. It was an open window. So I understand now where the ambiguity could have been from rather than being like a heroic sacrifice to keep the demon away from the, the young girl. Mm-hmm. I could easily see now someone thinking, oh, did the demon make him throw himself out the window and kill him? I could see that. Especially mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with like, well, like you were saying, you're trying to not say past film goers in the early 70s were naive. And I don't, and I don't think naive is the right word, but they didn't have the same amount of exposure stuff that we do now. Cause obviously there's no streaming, but even then they didn't even have home well, yeah. video. For better or for worse, they did not have Reddit, for example. Yeah, but they didn't have a nonstop influx of media to have seen every sort of tragic ending or heroic yeah. sacrifice. Like, so I can e- easily see now why there would have been ambiguity because, you know, his face does go demonic there at the end for a moment. And then he was able to kind of, I took it that he was able to willpower through it for a moment to take control of his body. And that's use that opportunity to launch himself out. Yeah. But I can yeah. easily see someone's thinking, oh, the demon's in him. And that's what made the demon made him jump out yeah. the window and kill himself. So. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's just because I've been so conditioned to think this is the yeah. hero. This is the hero moment. Yeah. He did it. He did it under his own own control. So, yeah. But thinking about it now, I can see the other side of the argument. 
Yeah, you're right. Like I can't even like even thinking back back to when we were kids, like there was no internet. Like we couldn't like look up. You we know, had we had Optimus Prime dying. Yeah. So we we learned very early on the the fatal consequences of heroic sacrifice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned the concept of using the shorthand because this relates to a very interesting podcast episode I listened to the other day. Uh, so I every so often listen to uh, with Gorley and Rust, which is a horror podcast hosted by Paul Rust and Matt Gorley. And oh, Matt Gorley. Yeah. Podcast legend. And so they're currently doing a series all about The Shining, which The Shining may probably be my favorite horror movie. It's definitely one of the... You mean The Shinnin. The Shinnin? Really? <laughs> I can't do the X. Um, but that was one of the... That may have been the first real horror movie I saw, but I love it. I just ordered it on 4K. But their whole current series is Shining and Shining related. And so they just watched Doctor Sleep. Mm-hmm. And Matt Gorley went on this brilliant... Diet, well, diatribe's too harsh, but he went on this very prolonged conversation about modern horror and how all the elevated horror has to be a metaphor for somebody's grief and how all these attempts at elevated horror since like Get Out and Hereditary, how ever since then, the past few years, all these attempts at elevated horror, you shorthand to sort of like get you to think, oh, there's emotional trauma in this character's background and the horror is a metaphor for that and how terrible that has gotten. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, in the weird infinitesimal chance that Matt Corley ever hears this, I agree with you 100%. It was such a wonderful argument. I actually am going to go listen to that episode again in the near future to take notes because I feel like so much of what he and Paul Russ talked about was excellent advice for writing horror screenplays just by analyzing what doesn't work in Dr. Sleep. And so I just wanted to make a little reference to that in case anyone is listening to this and is of like mind and wants a recommendation of what to listen to, listen to the With Gorley and Rust episode about Dr. Sleep, because, like me, they also did not like that movie, and they really had really eloquent reasons why. Matt Gorley, if you're listening to this, um, could you introduce us to Sona and Conan as well? Uh, if you hear this, just we will hey. be on an episode of Conan. Just let us on. Oh, I see. You want a six foot four redhead, a six foot four brunette's not good enough for you. <laughs> I want you to see you and Conan fight. You'd kick my ass. <laughs> I had one other big note, and that was the 1970s was the fucking Middle Ages. And in what way? You have to elaborate on that. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely will. But like, <laughs> I want to preface this by saying, like, we're like basically 90s kids, right? Like, we grew up, like, we were like conscious adults, not adults. You know, we, we, we remember the 90s. We, um, yeah, I, I remember the 90s more than the 80s, but that's so weird that you mentioned it because I was thinking about that yesterday where it's like, technically, I think I'm both an 80s kid and a 90s kid. Yeah. No, I think and I think people use it pretty loosely, but mm-hmm. the 70s was not that far behind like when we like, you know, grew up and there was like a 70s revival sort of thing in, in the 90s. Them using candles instead of lights. The nurse's like dungeon master key when uh, Karis goes to visit his mother. The doctor lighting up a cigarette in the hospital. Uh, I sort of love that scene for some reason. (laughs) Damien's mom's grimy ass neighborhood. Like I know it's supposed (laughs) to look bad, but like, like I said, it looks like the, the warriors. Uh, Pre Giuliani, New York, man. (laughs) He He cleaned it up and married his cousin. So America's mayor hadn't come into office. 
<laughs> and hit on that lady in Borat too. I just have the word mustaches in like uh, all caps. <laughs> I have HIPAA for psych and confessions. Like I feel like a lot of people are violating HIPAA in this movie. Yeah, I wonder what I can't remember what HIPAA came in, but. I- no, yeah, like I know that it wasn't, a th- you know, it wasn't, it hadn't come in on then, but like this, these would all be HIPAA violations now is what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. And then the 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 constant use of the phrase primitive cultures, like that seems a little, a little judgy. Um, so. Yeah, I, that was, I had that somewhere in my notes, I'm trying to find yeah. it now, but that was kind of going, kind of got to a little too early in the episode about how whether possession is inherently like a Catholic thing or whether other religions have it. Is this a world where there are multiple religions and the other religions have the demons, but in the Catholicism is the good religion? Like it was, uh, well, I think there, there yeah. could be good I, I am sure that it's already been done, but good studies on the the religiosity of this movie. It struck me that this movie is very sort of monotheistic and like sort of the other religions, um, even if it's like, you know, ancient Mesopotamia, and there's no one really to argue for the ancient Mesopotamian people or religion or gods now, mm-hmm. um, more exclusive than like this sort of like reference point that I had. Yeah, R.I.P. Freddie Mercury, the only famous Zoroastrian, I know. Um, <laughs> but something that I had in my notes that I was debating whether to bring up or not, but I think the implication is that she got possessed because of that Ouija board that was in the basement. Oh, yeah. Which I was curious, have you ever used one? I never have. I think maybe once, but it's been a long time. I don't, I mean, this is, this is not a board game that like was super popular, I think, in our No, I don't think childhood. I ever saw, I mean, the thing was, I never used one. I don't remember I mean, my family never owned one. I don't remember any friends owning one. But at the same time, it wasn't like out of fear of, oh my God, we're going to contact the dead. Yeah. It's like, no, this is a board game from Parker Brothers. Like, why the fuck am I, why would I buy this? Like, this obviously is not demonic or powerful if it's mass produced by Parker Brothers. So it's kind of like one of those things, even as a kid, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. I mean, the Monopoly man is pretty evil, so... All right, Mother Jones. <laughs> but we know exactly what it is. Like, and I think that's like Nickelodeon TV shows where the writers were like, you know, 20 to 30 years older than us. And like, this might have been a part of their childhood. But like, for us, like, they have a Ouija board on the office, for example, which is like 10 or 15 years ago. And like, I don't bat an eyelash at it, but yeah. bat an eye at it. I'm sure like younger people are like, what? what is this stupid thing? Because like, I feel like Sabrina the Teenage Witch had one. I feel like, what is that? The Midnight Society Nickelodeon show? Are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? I feel like they had one mm-hmm. on one episode. Like, I didn't have one, but I definitely knew what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, going back to your the shorthand comment that you mentioned earlier, like, that is horror shorthand. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, there's a Ouija board here gonna be a demon soon like it, <laughs> it, it, it it's the it's just a common cultural reference that rather than having to come up with some new way of introducing a demon into this story it's just like oh just throw a ouija board in good enough but it's interesting that like even not having had one we understood it and i wonder like if we asked like a you know 13 year old today like if they would know what it is and like i doubt they have one but maybe they do i mean if we want to do due diligence, I have a 13-year-old nephew who I could ask, but I'm... Uh, what I want you to do is go to the middle school in a coat and just start asking children if they want to see your Ouija board. <laughs> and then I hand them the board and they all use the little... What what was that thing called? I don't even know what that little mechanism would be called. Either way, they would just move it to the no answer immediately. And I'd Please touch my pointer, children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> 
My, I, um, I get this, my nephew would be like, is it on Steam? Yeah. <laughs> Did they show this on TikTok? I have, I have a final thought on The Exorcist. Um, and I mentioned how grimy Damien's mom's neighborhood was, but the whole movie is sort of grimy and really made me think about how film technology sort of or makes the image of the decade. And mm-hmm. I think about like, was it like 99 or 2000? But the, transition from film to digital? Yeah, well, exactly. But in terms of the Star Wars prequels started coming out mm-hmm. and they had this, you know, over sheen look, shadows mm-hmm. weren't quite right. People were having to act to like, you know, a, a broom with a handle or, you know, or to nothing. And you, it, it really kind of, the movies of that decade really have that look to them. A lot of, you know, CG that has aged like badly. And I just feel like the film grain on this movie, like the way they shot it helps exemplify what the 70s kind of, to us, what the 70s world looks like, because that's how we are experienced what it seemed like in the 70s to us for, you know, those of us who didn't obviously live through it. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right that the 70s, I, well, I'll just say, I think most decades upon the invention of color film, a lot of them, you can pretty easily identify what decade it's from just by how it looks. And I kind of like that, though. It's, uh, I like it when something is anchored in time. It kind of helps yeah. you kind of give more context and kind of understand maybe more of what the film's going for by mm-hmm. knowing when it's from. I don't know. That may be yeah, too no, elaborate like, even... for me at the moment. Even with that Star Wars analogy, like think about the prequels versus uh, A New Hope, where it's like, that is a grimy 70s, 70s ass movie. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it almost like those two, like this movie and Star Wars are like, like visual, visually similar to me than to like A New Hope and, and the prequels, for example. And Oh, sure. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I'm, go- I'm going through my notes. Oh, uh, I do. I do have one other thing to say. Uh, we saw the holy water in uh, in the movie. Uh, and the demon like pretending to uh, writhe around from the fake holy water. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to put in a word for my holy water. <laughs> this could be you, Spindrift. You could be on the podcast. Call us. Email us. I don't know what I'll do if we ever actually get a sponsor. I think I'll just <laughs> laugh. I'll just laugh and laugh. <laughs> All right. Well, I have I have the comment, I'd marry a pizza, which I think there was a line where... Alan Burson says, I love pizza, but I wouldn't marry. I think that's where that's from. I disagree. <laughs> yeah. I would marry a pizza. Have the comment, two priests in a bar, dot, dot, dot. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that. I was going to try and attempt a two priests walk into a bar joke. Nothing came of it because then he's talking about his mom being either dying or dead. I made a note to myself. I forgot the scene where Reagan grabs the psychiatrist nuts. I enjoyed the fact that the Max von Sydow priest at the end of the movie is hanging out in Woodstock. And I was thinking, well, I don't think that's during the concert, but it still seems kind of funny that there's some sort of hippie priest hanging out in Woodstock, New York. Uh, what did you think? Were you familiar with the iconic shot of the priest under the lamppost before seeing this? Like, no, did you not know that really. And I understood afterwards that it was like a very like iconic shot and it was pulled from, um, was it a painting? Oh, I don't know. I've just always known it as the exorcist image with the, the priest standing under the lamppost. No, yeah, no, I didn't know about it before now. Um, and then, like, basically everything I read about the movie, like, mentioned that shot as, like, being super famous and important and maybe kind of inspired by other stuff. Oh, I'm sure it is. It's it's an iconic film poster, regardless. I don't yeah. know where the inspiration came from. But most things are inspired <laughs> by other things, a.k.a. ripped off to some degree. All right, should we start wrapping it up then? Wrap it up like a possessed demon taking over your body.
All right. Well, go to stick with the pretense of the sad man podcast. What can we learn from this sad man priest? Jumping out windows is fun and solves all spelling. your problems. Yeah, exactly. Children, please don't jump out windows. The beginning of the movie, all my favorite things, dog fights and orientalism. So I learned that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like. That's why we call you the enlightened Michael Vick. <laughs> my, Vic did his time. Come on. I, I, I do feel like, you know, whatever that journey is, if you want to call it like religious or spiritual or just like helping your fellow man, like there is value in understanding that, you know, we, we can help our fellow people, even if we kind of feel like we haven't been able to um, just on the pure calculus of the thing. Like, it, I don't know if two like one, like, I guess, middle-aged priest and one old priest are equal to, like, saving a young girl. But it seems like that should be the probably the calculus. Mm. You know, she's got a whole life ahead of her. The other two have had their time. They, they serve their purpose, I yeah. guess you could argue. Yeah, my, my takeaway from it was you can't blame yourself for what happens outside your control. Like, he True. had a lot of guilt over how the end-of-life quality for his mom, and I guess arguable that he did have some control over that if he had pursued medicine outside the context of the uh, the priesthood. But I kind of took it to mean that the only way he could have gone to, and afforded all the schooling was by joining priesthood. Yeah. So I feel like I can't really well, necessarily blame himself for it. He had the resources. Of course, she would have had a different life, but he made those choices because he didn't have the financial resources. So yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to be like, cheer up, buddy. Here. <laughs> it's not your fault that your mom is dying in poverty. I mean, You're it sucks. Student loans nobody nobody wants that for her. Demon. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that is a very good way to go out on this episode. <laughs> All right. Remember, contact your local Joe Biden to get our student loans canceled. Oh, I, I have a, this is too good. I was so proud of myself for this. Okay. For the listeners. The power of Christ compels you to like, follow, and leave a positive review for this podcast. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you. All right. Well, this is going to be the wrap. This is going to be the wrap for our Halloween horror edition of Sad Man Podcast. Uh, our upcoming episodes in November. Uh, it just so happens that both of us have November birthdays. So we're going to do birthday choices for our films in November. Uh, Riddy, I believe you, did you decide on one year? I know in text messaging the other day you were debating, but have you decided? Do you want to I mean, I'm on the spot or? now, but I will say that, well, no, yeah, we can I've keep decided. Them in, we can keep yeah. them in suspense if you'd prefer. No, no, we've already, we've already, can't, you can't give them a peek and not show the whole kitten caboodle. Take that as you will. Uh, I was thinking I would do The Life Aquatic, one of my favorite bill murray movies and and our slow decline into bill murray cast one of the ones for november all right well if anyone's listening along that'll be our first episode in november i'm still on the fence i don't know if anyone listening to this would actually give a shit or not I, I, right now i think i'm debating between another 70s film the five easy pieces starring jack nicholson i'm also considering staying in the pretentious realm and going with Fellini's Eight and a Half, because I haven't seen that in a very long time. And I personally have been in a creative rut, so I feel like a movie about being in a creative rut may help a bit. So I don't know. If anyone out there has a say or an argument for one or the other, please let me know. Uh, Use this opportunity to email us or write a review where you tell us which one you prefer. Yeah, our podcast is cheerupbuddypod at gmail.com. I'm pretty sure that's right. If it's wrong, 
Uh, just check the show notes. It will be in there. Uh, otherwise, I think that does it for this week's episode. We're done. So you can cheer up, buddies. Yeah, cheer up, buddy. All right. Well, thanks, Riddy. This was another. I had a good time. This was another episode. Yes. All <laughs> right. Well, thanks Bye. for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.